Hello and welcome to the third episode of Five Favourite Books with me, Bella Debrera. This afternoon I'm talking again to the wonderful Greg Sheridan, foreign affairs journalist and commentator, about his third favourite book, uh, which is called My Antonia by Willa Cather. Good afternoon, Greg. Thank you very much for joining me again. Hi there, Bella. Great to be with you. On this lovely winter's uh, winter's day in, in Melbourne, with the hail coming yeah, down. Yeah, it's cold and chilly, absolutely. Actually, good. the weather's the weather's a good seg- segue into this book, which which is a lot about the elements, which is a lot about the seasons. Um, it's it's a story of a bohemian girl in rural Nebraska in the twentieth century. Um, first published in nineteen eighteen. Um, it's it's an amazing novel, and I'd love to hear from you. First of all, how you came across it, because it's, I doubt that anyone in Australia will have heard of Willa Cather, um, and, and what the book means to you. Well, Bella, uh, you're right. I mean, I hadn't heard of Willa Cather. So um, I greatly admire an American essayist and critic and short story writer called Joseph Epstein. And I was scrolling through Real Clear Politics once. So all the other five, all the other books on my list are books that I first read in my teens or early 20s. They're books that I got as a young man and have stayed with me all my life. This is a book I came upon in my 50s. So I was scrolling through Real Clear Clear Politics and I was reading their book review section and I read a review by Joseph Epstein of Willa Cather's collected correspondence, even though she'd left an instruction that her letters were never to be Mm. collected or published. Um, 60 years after her death, somebody did. And Epstein, whom I greatly admire, used to read his short stories in commentary and so on, said he thought Willa Cather was the the best novelist of the 20th century. And I thought, wow, that's a big claim for someone like Epstein to make. So, And he picked out two books of hers particularly, Death Comes for the Archbishop and My Antonia. And so I read My Antonia. And at first, um, so let's say who Willa Cather is and what this book is about first. So Willa Cather was... Uh, originally from Virginia, and at the age of nine, she was moved to Nebraska uh, with her parents. And so she went from a settled, established, uh, old, traditional life in Virginia to this raw frontier in Nebraska. She was, Sorry and to interrupt. She was born in late, um, the late... 18, 1870 eight, or something. 1870, that's right. So Something like is, that. Just, uh, this about, is just this is just when, when Nebraska is being opened up, where it's, it's this, the frontier, isn't it? That's right. She yeah. was born in 1873, I just checked. And mm. um, so Nebraska is this really raw frontier and she's overwhelmed by the sky and the space mm. and the prairies. And she um, gets to know mainly the North European immigrants, Swedes, Germans and Bohemians. And of course, we have to say by Bohemians, we mean people from Bohemia. We don't mean people who lived a louche lifestyle or something like that, you know. And um, and my Antonia, which was based on a, a particular person she knew, is a story of this Bohemian girl who grows who who migrates to Nebraska like uh, Willa Antonia, uh, like Willa Cather did herself, but all the way from Bohemia with her parents. And they have to tame the land. It's at one level it's a great story of immigrant success. They um they make a, a living more or less out of their farm. But it's really uh, a story of um, of the of the divine drama, really, humanity and God. And it's the story of um, 
It's partly the story of Nebraska, so and the landscape, and everything about Willa Cather's method I don't like in general. So I hate landscape writing. I have no visual imagination. <laughs> I like dialogue and intellectual confrontation and so on. But she writes absolutely magnificently of the Nebraska landscape. It's a, it's a character in the novel. I also like novels which have um, a lot of really clever dialogue, but a lot of the characters in this book uh, are very ordinary folk and they speak in an ordinary way and some of them don't even speak great English. And then I also um, I like books which have a clear plot, whereas Willa Cather doesn't really do that. She just gives you the, the pattern of life. But to give you Willa Cather's life story very shortly, she was a very clever girl herself and wanted to be a writer and so left home and moved to New York and became a journalist. But she wrote novels about, uh, primarily about um, the Midwest. She was one of the great Midwest authors. Then later on, she wrote novels with other settings in Europe and New Mexico mm. and Canada. Uh, she never married. She was a, a born a Baptist, became an Episcopalian, was quite devout. She wrote magnificently about Catholic priests. Death Comes for the Archbishop is the best fictional treatment of the priest's mindset that I've ever seen. Because she never married and she shared a house with, um, with a close female friend, a certain section of academic opinion has always tried to, you know, impose on her a lesbian identity. But there's no evidence for that. Uh, not that it would matter one way or another, but there's, there's absolutely no evidence for that either in her correspondence or her life or in her literature, which yeah, is I, yes, I read that the, I read that the, the sort of the, um, the, queer, the queer studies team have tried to, tried to make her one of theirs, but, that, but there is no real evidence either way. But as you say, it doesn't, really, it doesn't matter. Um, her no, novels, it, her... it wouldn't matter. But, and I think it's quite silly to try to mm. retrospectively fit someone up with, a, uh, with contemporary with identity. identity politics. Yeah, you know. yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, some feminists love her because a lot of her protagonists are women and they have great agency. Others don't like her much because some of her protagonists embody very traditional womanly virtues. Mm. You know, they suffer... Uh, the well, not suffers. Suffers probably the wrong word, but they endure. They're, there's a lot of endurance in Nebraska, and the power of endurance is is part of what she uh, what she writes about so brilliantly. Um, and a lot of the women are very traditional. So Antonia herself, although very beautiful and very clever and very talented, ends up in a very traditional role. You know, she becomes the by the novel's end, she's the mother of ten. She lives on a fairly dim farm with her fairly dim husband, mm. and yet she is a radiantly successful human being. Even though she's lost her teeth, she's still as yeah. radiant as she was as a, as a younger woman. She that endures, that radiance endures. In fact, her character has been described as as a as a ray of light throughout the book. Um, she takes she she shines in the darkness, and she shines in the hardship, and she shines and she endures, and she stays. That light stays as strong throughout the novel from the first page to the last page, which, which I, I found one right. of the things that was very, was very attractive about the novel. Yes, I think that's right, Bella. I think that's right. Would it be all right if I read a, a little passage about uh, Antonia? Oh, please from, do. Because the book is narrated by her friend, Jim Burden, who is kind of in love with her, but it, mm. it's, not really, it's not really an eros love. He just, he just loves being with her and... Um, was made into a fairly lame film in which, of course, they have a sort of a, uh, 
there's a kind of a conventional love story, but she's a bit mm. older than mm. than Jim, so he doesn't. It's not really a romantic love. Although uh, towards the end of the book, her friend Jim Burden goes back to see her after an absence of some years, and he write he writes of her. She lent herself to immemorial human attitudes, which we recognise by instinct as universal and true. I had not been mistaken. She was a battered woman now, not a lovely girl, but she still had that something which fires the imagination, could still stop one's breath for a moment by a look or gesture that somehow revealed the meaning in common things. She had only to stand in the orchard, to put her hand on a little crab tree and look up at the apples, to make you feel the goodness of planting and tending and harvesting at last. All the strong things of her heart came out in her body that had been so tireless in serving generous emotions. It was no wonder that her son stood tall and straight. She was a rich mine of life, like the founders of early nations. And that's how she strikes her friend, who goes on to become, you know, a very successful lawyer 20 or 30 years later um, after they've been childhood friends. Actually, it's interesting because obviously the, the book is narrated by her friend, Jim, <clears throat> who arrives in Nebraska at the same time on the same train as the whole family. And he spots her, um, you know, very early on and then teaches her how to, to speak English. And um, But you still get the sense that the novel's about her, even though that, that the experiences and the memories are his. So she still managed to, to stay the main character, even though it's narrated by someone else. And I thought that was quite quite an interesting way that she 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 wrote that book. Absolutely, I think <clears throat> Willa Cather is technically sort of utterly majestic. I mean, mm. she is really an astonishing novelist. I've never really read novels like her. So as, as I say, all of my other favourite books, I, I you know they appeal to every prejudice I have, and I feel so <laughs> comfortable in them. You know. But I came upon Willa Cather in my mid or late 50s, and um, at first I couldn't get what Epstein was about because her method of narration mm. is is different from the novels I normally like. She, mm. There are dramatic incidents in the book, but they tend to happen off stage and they're, they're described indirectly. And what Willa yeah. Cather is really all about, most novelists go for the dramatic moment the moment of epiphany, the existential moment when some deep truth is revealed or some deep development takes place in a character. Willa Cather is not a novelist of that kind. She conveys to you the pattern of life rather than the dramatic moments of life. And so the most dramatic things happen and affect you. So um, Antonia, through her goodness and so on, falls in love with a guy who turns out to be a scoundrel and mm. he's already married and mm. uh, so their marriage is not real and then she she's pregnant and she's left as a single mother for a while. and um, But all of that is related off stage later on by as Jim well as, Burden. Yes, as well as Antonia's father's suicide, which was a very surprising and unexpected passage in the book, but still happens off stage. Yeah, um, uh, and that's... It, even though it's a major, it's a major, and, and it's a, it's 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 a rupture in the novel. It's a rupture in the happiness of the novel. I think um, you suddenly have this shocking news, but it's still sort of it's still not central to the to to the novel. That we come back very soon to 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 normal life, to to the to the horses and to the to the to getting on with life. 
Um, and and the other point. Sorry, I'm talking a bit too much here, but no, no, not about a bit, not a bit. being a being a pattern of life is interesting because life is doesn't things don't necessarily occur to you in a, in you know in half an hour and are life changing. Sometimes things happen and then you realize five years later that's why that happened. I understand that now. That's changed. That's changed my life. But it's taken five years to work it out, and it's similar with this novel. It takes him twenty years between seeing her and then and then returning to her on the farm for him to realize just how good she is. Yes, he he was always under her spell, and he always loved her in a way. But I mm. say, as I say, it's not primarily an eros love. No, it's it's just that being in her company made him the happiest uh, that he could be, and he recognised the goodness in her. Mm. So she's a kind of a a tremendous life force. There's a great will in her. But what you were saying earlier is right too, um, Bella. She doesn't glamorise immigrant life in Nebraska. It's pretty tough. The Shemurders mm. get to their property. They've been swindled a bit. There's only a cave on the property. There's not even a house. Um, her father misses the life of Central mm. Europe. You know, he brings his violin. He misses the culture which is what, Europe. which is what Willa Cather missed, isn't it? When she went to Nebraska, she even missed the culture of Virginia. It she did. So mm. in no way is Antonia Willa Cather, but Willa Cather mm. uses her mm. own biographical information, mm. especially that journey. So that railway journey occurs about, in a sense, four times. You know, Jim meets an old friend on that journey as a, as a as an older man, uh, which kind of frames the reminiscence of mm. the book. And Jim and Antonia both take the journey separately mm. as kids when they're migrating to Nebraska. And this is also the journey that Willa Cather herself took. But she certainly doesn't glamorise immigrant life, the hard labour of immigrant life. Just how hard it was to make a living out of the Nebraska prairies is there. But at the same time, and this is, I think, also fidelity to the Midwest, the people are very cultured. They read books, they play the violin, they uh, have musical evenings, they they talk deeply. And we know, you know, one of the, there's almost nothing that Karl Marx ever said which was true. And one of the very stupidest things he said <laughs> was to talk about the stupidity of rural life, mm. the stupidity of farm life. Mm. What that indicated was the stupidity of Karl Marx. Mm. Only someone who lived their life in the London Museum mm. and never never actually amongst real rural folk, mm. could make a comment like that. Willa Cather was herself influenced more by Russian and French novelists than by English novelists. And the people in her novels work incredibly hard but are deeply cultured and talk a great deal. They, they talk things over. They consider things. So um, uh, she is one of the great novelists of the American Midwest, and, of course, I think the outside world completely misunderstands the American Midwest. The American Midwest is one of the great cultural engines of human culture. You know, the the university which has won the most Nobel Prizes in history is Chicago. Skyscrapers, uh, the first skyscraper ever was built in Chicago. And you had, at about the time of Willa Cather, the emergence of these great Midwestern novelists, Sinclair Lewis and... Uh, Theodore Dreiser and um, and a number of others. And one of Willa Cather's other novels, the, the Song of the Lark, is about a great opera singer who comes from the Midwest. Mm. Well, of course, rural people often very deeply value culture. They value it more 
probably than people who can just switch it on on Netflix and get it, but never do. Yes, know? actually, when when Jim grows up and moves, we move away from Antonia for a bit, and he moves to the town. Is it Black? I can't uh, remember the name of the town. Red Hill or something? Red Hill. He moves yeah. to the town and the Italians arrive. Some, some, some amazing Italians arrive with, their, with this sort of tent and they hold dance classes every night for, for a year and the locals absolutely love it and they take to this, this, this sort of European culture and, this, and um, with, with so much gusto, um, which, is, which, which is very interesting. And the, the next door neighbours, the Hardings, who are Norwegian, have a piano and they all play. From the, from the oldest daughter to the youngest, and they are very cultured. Um, yeah, and and, 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 it, and it, it really shines through. It shines through, in, in com- and it, it also shines through in in terms of look, making the the sort of the American born le- look less cultured. It's the Europeans that bring across with them, even though they work on the land, and you know they'd be considered working class. They come with this this antiquity and this civilization, and they bring it to Nebraska, and they bring it to that part of the world. That's right. Although I would say that's true of the native, you know, the Americans as well, mm. uh, the American-born Americans. Um, the Midwest was, you know, quite religious, but it wasn't an insane Bible Belt or anything. No, no. But but people went there to build a civilization. Mm. They didn't go there to get. Uh, I mean, let's you know, I don't want to be too flip about this, but they didn't go there to get social security or unemployment <laughs> benefits or something. They, they, they went there to build a civilization, and that's what they did. Mm. Well, Akatha herself as a kid, uh, she lived near a, a Jewish family which had a lot of books, and they um, – was it a Jewish or an Italian family? She, there was a Jewish, it was a Jewish – a German-Jewish family. Yeah. And she, and they, used, to, they she had, used to read their library, look at their library. Yeah, so they yeah. let her come in and borrow any book that she liked. So a kid in a rural background will actually have the most precious gift. They'll have time for mm. reading – and mm. reflection, and then they'll have a few friends uh, to talk it over with as mm. well. And we get the the idea that all civilization has to occur in Manhattan or the West End of mm. London or Sydney or Melbourne or something. But you know, you couldn't have produced a more sophisticated literary intelligence than Willa Cather, and it all it all came out of the Midwest there in, so in the, Nebraska. The, deplor- the deplorables are educated after all. Yeah, that's right. A very large number of them. Uh, very large. And of course, anyone who's lived in the US, there is a um, an ethos, it might all be changing now, of deep courtesy in the Midwest. You know, uh, uh, I've lived on four separate occasions in the United States and um, I spent some time living in Virginia, which is not exactly mm. the Midwest. But, you know, we'd go out for a, for a walk, my wife and I, and everyone you'd pass would say, well, hello there. Well, howdy. Or, yeah. you know, some lovely old lady approached us who might have come straight from a Willa Cather novel <laughs> and said, how lovely it is to see a wonderful young couple like you. I mean, I was then kind of in my late 40s or something, <laughs> out, out on a sunny day. And there's, there's this deep neighborliness mm. in American culture. Now, mm. probably, you know, digital worlds and everything are eliding all that away. But you can see the importance of neighbours in in an environment like uh, my, my Antonia. I mean, you have to get on with your neighbours because maybe they're the only people you're going to see for most of the week, you know, and you, you want to um, express uh, solidarity with them and, um, you know, help them out with a bit of food when they're starting out and 
help them out with a bit of farm labour and they'll help you out and you look yes. after each other when you're sick and uh, or when and the horse the has or when the horse has colic that was it that was an yeah. interesting scene um there there are lovely uh, moments too sorry just a thought, right. thought you provoked there bella there are lovely moments of interreligious um mm. accommodation too so the Shemurdas are catholics a lot of the uh white americans around them are protestants and a lot of the other north europeans are protestants uh and at christmas there's some point at which Mr. Shimurda kneels and makes the sign of the cross. Mm. And uh, one of the Anglo families, it's happening in their house, and, you know, the dad is a bit sort of disapproving of this, you know, what kind of dreadful paper superstition is mm. going on here. But but he doesn't say anything. He just, in in Willa Cather's words, he Protestantizes the yeah. moment by by standing and just bowing his head slightly, you know. Nothing is said between Shimurda and uh, and Burden and the, or whoever it is. Yeah, the grandfather. But it's just a little accommodation uh, of the two religious traditions. There's a similar scene at the funeral of the, of Mr. Shimurda where I think after the prayers, one of them suggests, says, should we sing a hymn to make it less heathen? And then they, <laughs> so they sing a Protestant hymn, hymn after the, the, the Catholic... Uh, funeral, which is again a sort of similar, similar sort of combination of this, this uh, the religious beliefs, but and and they needed to, they needed to get on. They they had to rely on each other. There was no one else. Um, and the neighbor, the neighbor, uh, the neighbors are very important in the in the novel. They they really feature in both halves, don't they? First, first the Shimurdas and 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 Jim and his family and neighbors, and then he moves and he moves next to the Hardings, and they're just as important in his young adult life. As the Shimodas had been in his childhood. Yes, and Jim Jim is orphaned, so he um, he has a little bit of a hole in his family life. Mm. And you know, a lot of us in childhood have had a friendship where it's just been because we live next door or mm. something like that. And so he, for the first few years of his life, lives next door to Antonia, and and so they just fall into great friendship. Mm. But even now, Bella. After all these years and having read a million novels, and then then I instantly went off and read all of Willa Cather's novels that I could get. So I bought them all in secondhand bookstores before before the digital revolution shut down secondhand bookstores. I'm sure you can now buy them online. But I, I used to love going around to secondhand bookstores. I mean, all the books I love are kind of out of print and so mm. on. So, um, you know, it shows what a terrible old dinosaur uh, you can be. But... Um, her books must have circulated well in Australia once because they were easy to get in those second-hand bookstores. But I then read all of her all of her books that I could. Some of them I liked more than others, but certainly Death Comes for the Archbishop and um, and uh, there's another one set in Canada, which is... Uh, is it which called is, O... Um, oh, no, there's another one, O Pioneers. O but Pioneers. There's one, um, which, oddly enough, is one of the few that I haven't read. But the one set in Canada is... Um, Shadows on the Rock, Shadows on the Rock. And that's this historical novel set a couple of hundred years ago. And in those novels, she explores religious belief very deeply. But even having read all these novels, I cannot quite say where Willa Cather's true genius resides. I mean, mm. she's defeated me as a as a sort of second-rate analyst. You know, I, I can tell you why I think Evelyn Moore is so clever. You know, yes, this brilliant yes, dialogue. Yes. I can describe the poetic effects of... Christopher Kosh's prose, but I can't even quite... I mean, I can certainly find individual sentences of Willa Cather that are lovely, although she doesn't She doesn't give you a purple passage. There's a, there's a simplicity and a beauty mm. in her writing. But 
but I can't even really say how it is that I find myself so moved by Antonia's story and so happy to be in her company. Do you think it's because um, it's a truly universal universal novel and it's not particular, so it appeals to, it touches something in, in your soul, doesn't it? it? It certainly was a very moving novel. And again, you can't really put your finger on it. Um, is it the universality of it? Is it, is it, is it, is it the sort of that we're all we're all living this life we're all living this life that has a pattern that that and and we, it is full of suffering and joy and happiness and um and she captures that well and she captures that sort of the, the memory of someone well I, I don't i don't know if i'm explaining yeah. it properly i'm, I'm, no, I'm no, trying I to figure it out a, as well yeah no i think there's a lot in what you say certainly antonia or antonia is a is a universal character but of course an artist only gets to the universal through the particular. Mm. So it is the it is the living authenticity of this Nebraska background. Uh, um, another book I loved was uh, a memoir by Amos Oz, the is, Israeli novelist, um, which I think is uh, a, a time of love and um, a time of love and madness, or something like that. And it's a beautiful memoir. It has the same nostalgic quality. But I found when I read that that memoir. I could smell every beetroot in his kitchen, you know, just mm. the power. Mm. So this is the artist's brilliance to mm. to bring this universal vision to life through the particular. Now, I've never been on a Nebraska farm in my life, but I felt that I knew the Shimurda's uh, living room yes. very, very well, and yeah. I could smell the cakes and the and the bread and so on that they were cooking, and I could taste the food they were eating. Yes. But the other thing um, which I can't quite work out is that somehow or other Antonia is a tremendous life force but she's a completely believable character so she's very good she makes a lot of mistakes or she makes some bad mistakes you know she chooses the wrong person to marry um, she can't think ill of anyone that she loves mm. um, she makes a few impetuous decisions mm. she looks back and thinks a lot of things in her life well, good. She doesn't look back and think things were bad. So she went into domestic service for a while. And when she has 10 kids of her own, she thinks, well, wasn't that great? Because yes. I learned how to run a, exactly. I learned how to run a good house. You know, yeah. uh, wasn't I lucky about that? The illegitimate daughter she has, she says, well, wasn't I lucky to have her? Mm. She's wonderful, mm. you know. And um, She's not and bitter. She, she's not bitter. She's not bitter. She? And she's not full no. of regret. No. So a, a typical postmodern conceit is to end on a down note mm. and say, you know, oh, isn't life miserable? Mm. And that's in re reaction to the sort of romantic cliche of ending with a marriage and isn't isn't everything wonderful, mm. you know? And, of course, real life is something else. It's, mm. It doesn't ever end. First of all, it doesn't end until you die. Mm. And second of all, it's seldom everything's perfect or everything's bad. But uh, Antonia is someone who... Um, makes all her choices, commits to life with great energy and generosity, and is tremendously happy. So she marries this sort of fairly dim guy from mm. Bohemia, but he's she brings out the goodness in him. So he realises how lucky he is to have married someone like Antonia, and then he does his best. It's not all that great what he does. He drinks a bit too much sometimes, and he he doesn't produce any great fortune or fame or anything. But he loves his wife. He's grateful. He misses. He himself misses mm. uh, 
uh, Central Europe. He says to Jim, in the early days, I died of lonesomeness, missing, you know, I presume Prague and and the yes, other. Yes, because he was a city man. He was a city man. He wasn't. He wasn't absolutely. Even- he was so a lot of these, in the country. Yeah, a lot of these mm. North European migrants who came mm. out to make a living in mm. rural America, they weren't farmers back in Europe. Mm. So they had to learn to farm and they maybe had never done physical labour before and then they had to break this land and so uh, tough. plant crops and make enough uh, crops to eat and manage their, their small finances. Mm. But he himself is very happy too because he's he's got 10 wonderful kids and um, and he's got Antonia, mm. and and so there's there's a joy in that, you know. Whereas on another way, you could say, well, this guy lives in poverty and he's isolated from the European culture that he loved. He should be miserable. Mm. And yet, even in saying all this, I feel somehow or other, I can't tell you why her artistry is so successful in making me feel that I, I was in the Shemurda's living room, mm. I met Antonia, and I'm better for having met her. And really to come upon that in in sort of, you know, in middle age, Evelyn War said he didn't discover Henry James until middle age, and it was a great kindness that he, he hadn't used up Henry James. He loved Henry James so much until middle age. The only thing I'd slightly compare her to is a novel I've referred to you before, um, Anthony Powell's Dance to the Music of Time. Mm. It's over 12 volumes, and it is full of a lot more of the stuff that I normally like, you know, ostentatiously witty conversation and mm. and all of that. But it also, in a sense, has a story but not a plot. It gives you, reviewers have said of it, nothing gives you the sense so much of time passing in real life as a dance to the music of time. Mm. So nothing... No great issue is ever resolved or even, in a sense, ever joined in A Dance to the Music of Time. It's a novel, you might say, of manners and dialogue and psychology, whereas Willa Cather is a novel of landscape and manners, meaning the way people actually live and um, psychology or spirituality, really. Uh, so, as I say, it, it doesn't have all that stuff that you that you normally like in a novel. You couldn't even really say where the where the climax is or, or, no. or anything like that. I don't think there is one. I, I think no. it's a novel without one. Um, why, why do you think it never really... Why do you think she hasn't found fame outside of America? Do you think it's because it's too... Well, I mean, we've just said that the, the theme's universal, so there's no reason why it shouldn't appeal to, to people outside America. But it, was it because she was not wanting to sound, you know, identity politics? Is it because she was a woman? Is it because she just didn't... The, the books weren't taken on by scholars here, academics didn't discover her? I think um, that's a really interesting question, Bella. So Such an interesting question. There are a lot of many different angles to it. Mm. For a while, she was intensely popular within America. She won a Pulitzer Prize mm. for one of her novels. Um, not, I think, one of her best novels, but um, that's normally the case with Pulitzer Prizes. They they often get the right author. They almost never get the get right the book. <laughs> And uh, and often enough, they get the wrong author too, you know. But uh, yeah. so for a time, she was immensely popular. So she did she did a, a very kind of traditional thing. Although it was unusual to be a successful woman novelist at the time that she did, and unusual to write about the mid the Midwest, even within America. Mm. America itself hadn't quite realised how what a what a beautiful thing it had created in the Midwest, and so. 
you know, it was expected that novelists would come from New York or Boston or, or something like this rather than than the Midwest. But she moved to New York and she worked in journalism and she honed her craft. She was all, like a lot of great writers. She was always writing. That was mm. every day she worked at writing and she worked and worked and worked. She wrote a lot of magazine journalism and she ghost wrote some books and so on. And always... Now, I think um, My Antonia was one of her first big successes. And partly, of course, it appealed to America because it was the story of immigrant success. And Americans can be proud of uh, the the Nebraska, the Midwest that uh, Willa Cather produces. However, I think two things counted against her becoming massively popular, or perhaps three things. First of all, um, she never really fitted into any literary camp. So she was writing in the 19-teens and the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. And by then, there was already a very high modernism in Mm. literature. And she didn't really fit into that camp. Mm. So a lot of, in the the second half of her career, a lot of critics thought she wasn't um, radical enough. She didn't Mm. do enough experimentation. She Mm. wasn't James Joyce-ish enough. Mm. And then there's not much... um, transgressive sexual behavior. I mean, mm. people people marry the wrong person and they have illegitimate babies and so on, but, you know, they, they're not, um, they're not, she really affirms the decencies of life. She mm. doesn't attack them. And, of course, she's quite conservative, mm. um, both personally. She didn't really let politics get into her books, but she was a, she was a conservative person. She's quite a, a devout Episcopalian, she really um, revered Roman Catholic liturgy and the tradition of Catholic art and so forth. So that meant that that group of critics didn't quite like her. Mm. And then there were some critics who tried to uh, recruit her to queer theory and everything. Mm. But what she wrote wasn't really, Mm. you know, just the fact that she was a single woman and for a little while in her youth sort of wore slightly manly clothes and you know, for a brief time went under the name of Will rather than Yes, that's right, Will, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I don't think it's fair to kind of interpret that more than she did herself. Mm. But so they wanted to recruit her to that school, but they couldn't quite Mm. do it. And then I think finally there's a bit of a prejudice in English and uh, or British circles and the circles that derive from British circles like Australian circles against... American novelists, mm. you know, unless they are conferred with a Nobel Prize or something, it's different now. But I think in the 20s and 30s and 40s and so on, Australian audiences would naturally look to Britain. Yes. You know, what did the, yeah. what did the Times say about it? Yes. It, was, yeah. it was hard enough for Australian authors to get a voice then. And in a sense, writing about the American Midwest would have been would have seemed very exotic, a bit like writing about Thailand or something mm. Uh, mm. to an Australian audience. Having said that... You know, her books are still in print in the United States in classic editions and mm. so on, and they still have a respectable sale um, all well, the time. I've got, I've got my vintage Penguin Cather here, which, which is which is reprinted, which was last year. So it's obviously oh, so that's that's in yeah. print now. Then yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's lovely. It's a lovely with a lovely. Bella, forward. you're disillusioning me. You're telling me I could have bought this damn book in a, in a <laughs> Sorry, regular bookstore. You could have bought it in a regular bookstore. <laughs> Instead of traipsing all over every secondhand bookstore I ever knew, finding and thinking, 
thinking what a genius I was to get this uh, this ancient <laughs> copy of Willa Cather's book. You know, uh, I'm sure you enjoyed your visit to the to the bookshop. I think that was probably part of part of the thrill, anyway, wasn't it for you? Oh yeah, yeah. I, I love <laughs> I love secondhand books. You can probably absolutely. even get this on Kindle. So I don't I, I don't even I don't want to disillusion you even further, but it's probably. <laughs> Widely, never, widely accessible electronically. I've never read a book on Kindle, but I have to say this is a bit vain of me. Of my seven books, typically about ten percent of their sales are on um, are on electronic devices. So God bless people who read yes, books on Kindle. Yes, but it I'm doesn't mean you need to. You don't need to join them. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> no, it's a wonderful book. Um, actually, did do you think um, it influenced Harper Lee's *To Kill a Mockingbird* in that sort of um, coming of age? genre or do you think that's it's a, that's a little bit of a stretch no i think it did have a big a big influence um so she occupies that very elusive and distinctive position of an artist who does innovate but who doesn't innovate for the sake of innovation and whose effects are very hard to reproduce uh i mean if you told me would you like to read a book in which there is basically no plot? <laughs> no, no dialogue, nothing, no nothing comedy, dramatic. no banter. Yeah. There, there is dialogue, but, but no it's, climax. it's pretty straightforward dialogue. And there is humour, but but it's wry humour and so on. Um, I I would say no. And would if you said, do you want to read lengthy descriptions of landscape, especially landscape you've never seen and have no sympathy for? You'd I would say, say no. absolutely not. I mean, Death Comes for the Archbishop is set in New Mexico and is full of mesas and canyons and everything. I've never met a mesa or canyon in my long <laughs> life. You know, I've never shaken hands with them. I don't know what they're like. I don't know anything about them. But there I was absolutely wrapped in these descriptions mm. of them. And um, Willa Cather herself was uh, uh, loved Tolstoy. And mm. um, she doesn't write like Tolstoy, but she loved the, the sort of... Uh, the engagement with ideas and also the um, visual quality of Tolstoy's writing. But I do think um, there is also in many of her books uh, a memory frame. So she doesn't do flashbacks and things. They're not discontinuous. She mm. doesn't sort of jump from, you know, 1920 to 1870 and no, back to 1930s. So yeah. All that kind yeah. of mad fashion, yeah. which just makes novels almost unreadable yeah. and you want to throw them away the second time that happens, you know. But she will frame a lot of her stories as a memory. So, I mean, this is very similar. Chris Kosh uh, does that with many of his novels mm. too. So, and one of the reasons she did that, again, there was a formal technical reason for this. She didn't want to be the omniscient author who knew the innermost thoughts of every character. So she knew the innermost thoughts of her narrator, mm. but then all the rest of her characters are simply observed by the narrator. Now, the narrator might speculate as to the innermost motions, emotions of the character but that he's describing. But basically, so it's show, don't tell. But mm. on the other hand, narrating in the voice of a character allows her to make some comments legitimately as the character. So she wanted to be, I saw one critic say, halfway between the journalist who just reports what they see and the omniscient psychological novelist who pretends that they know the innermost truths of every human heart. And that's generally what I like, because what I want in literature is the innermost truths of every human heart. And it takes a much more accomplished level of artistry to get to those inner truths without 
as it were, the inner voice, you know. Isn't that um, the answer to your question then, why, as to why you like this novel so much? Have you don't just be. answered your own question? So nobody else may learn anything from these conversations, but I may, <laughs> fella. That's, uh, that could be, that could be. And then, you know, you expect Jim Burden and Willa to have a romantic encounter because that's the... Antonia, the two, yeah. Antonia, to have a... Yeah. To have a um, you do. Yeah, you do. But I'm going to say a lot of the greatest novels set that situation up and then don't consummate it. Mm. Um, it's a bit like um, Dorothea and the Doctor in Middlemarch, which came out in in uh, installments. It was a serialised novel. And everyone thought these are the two great leads. Mm. Somehow or other, George Eliot is going to get them together. But by the end of 600 pages, they're not. And I think Middlemarch, too, is one of the greatest novels I've ever read. And um, it's the same, really, with um, with Ralph Touchett and Isabel in uh, Portrait of a Lady. The, the affection between them is overwhelming, and yet uh, it's not an affection of Eros. And mm. and I think our expectations are a bit narrow, too. And, and again, life is like that. You know, you have deep human attachments which don't automatically mm. fall into the romantic love um, category. Uh, but did she influence other writers? I think she certainly did. The... The um, the atmosphere of nostalgia, but not of overwhelming nostalgia. So everything is kind of in balance in Willa Cather. So Jim Burden is nostalgic, but he doesn't lament the past. He doesn't wish for the past. He just enjoys the past. And he enjoys going back to see Willa Cather. I've read so many novels where characters are reunited after many years and it's a terrible disappointment. Mm. And then they realise, you know, that love is gone and everything. Instead of which, Jim Burden and, and Antonia can have a completely innocent and enjoyable reunion. Indeed, you know, the husband is away, Antonia's husband, but then he comes back. And there's no suggestion of, um, uh, of an unrequited love or mm. an unfulfilled love or something. Jim Burden regrets Antonia's mistakes early on. He's kind of bitter with her. Not that she didn't love him, but that she let herself <laughs> fall down into a life which he thinks is beneath her. But it's part of the genius of the book that, in fact, she endows the life that she inhabits with a transcendent meaning and magnificent truth. And at the end, he realises she didn't live a life beneath her. She elevated the life of everyone around her. And she elevated your life just by, just by reading it. I think so. You, yeah. I, you can never really claim a book has made you a better person because <laughs> then you're trying to claim you're a, you're a good person, or, or you or have you're to a bad, resort, or you're a bad person to start with, and you needed absolutely to make you a better person. Exactly, you have to resort <laughs> to that line of evil and wars that I that I mentioned to you in our last discussion. You think I'm crook now? Just imagine what I'd imagine, be without Christianity. You know? <laughs> imagine what you'd and, be like if you hadn't read about an Antonia. Well, that's right. So, so Bob, Bob Carr, who's read a million books, he he answered an interview once. He said, uh, "No, I can't claim." that having read all these books makes me a better politician or anything like that. It was just necessary for me to read these books. Now, I think there is a tremendous value in great human literature. And I know, you know, you've been involved in promoting the great books of Western civilization. And I I think there is a deep value in reading them, but it's, it's like going to church. The mere fact that you go to church doesn't actually guarantee you're going to be a good person, you know. <laughs> So the mere fact that you've read Willa Cather doesn't guarantee that you're going to no. lead a life of transcendent purpose and, uh, you know, make everyone around you happy that they've been around you. And yet the other thing, Bella, I'd say to you is 
in my life, there are two or three people I'd say I've known whose presence is simply transforming. I, I was in hospital um, 25 or 28 years ago with my first iteration of, of heart disease. And it was like being in a conscript army. You know, I was in a, in a ward with, it was a big ward in those days, eight or 10 other blokes. And one of the other blokes was a Syrian Christian mm. and Sam. And Sam and I became the best of friends just for our 10-day stay in hospital. And Sam was a male version of Antonia. You know, he he was waiting for his operation so he could still walk around and everything. And so if somebody pressed the buzzer and the nurse didn't come, Sam mm. would get up to them in the middle of the night and go and see if he could help them, make them a cup of tea, look after them and so on. Sam and I sat out on the, on the uh, veranda one day at the hospital and talked about our lives for a couple of hours. And I realised that, Sam was just one of these characters, you know, mm. whose kind of goodness radiated from mm. him, unselfconscious goodness. I mean, he's a regular guy. He was a blind, uh, a blind maker. You know, he made Venetian mm. blinds or something. Yeah. He wasn't yeah. uh, wasn't a professor of literary theory or anything like that. <laughs> but he was just somebody who could have figured in a Willa Cather mm. uh, novel. Uh, so you, I don't think it's unrealistic to think of people like that. No, I think that people do people do exist like that. And and you met and you met one in the form of Sam. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and uh, you know we tried to keep in touch afterwards, but it's like you've been through a war together. I mean, mm. it's old wartime buddies. You know, you kind of get together on Anzac Day, but really, <laughs> what you have ex- in common is your time in the trenches. You know, yeah. becomes a bit <laughs> dull for anyone who wasn't there with you. <laughs> well, I think. It's a lovely novel and, and, and it's been another absolutely fascinating conversation. And I, I think, I hope I hope people will read it, actually. I hope um, n- now that we know that you can buy a, a Penguin <laughs> copy in a local Dimmicks, it might be worth it might be worth getting one while we're still all sort of in lockdown. Because um, it's, it's, a, it's a lovely um, trans, um, what's the word? It trans, it takes you out of your your life for a while. What's the word I'm looking for? It's, well, uh, it certainly succeeds that way. Like all does. great novels, it it draws you into it. You're yes. in Willa Cather's world. Yes, you I mean, are. wherever you're reading it, you're that's where you are. You're in Nebraska, and there are worse places to be. You know, that's mm. Uh, mm. that's that's right. And so it's a great novel to read in lockdown or something because, um, mind you, I'm quite enjoying lockdown, I have to tell you. It's, it's <laughs> nice uh, not having to go to work and everything is, is terrific. But, um, it's but not going to last forever, Greg. No, no. In any <laughs> circumstance, it's nice to read Willa Cather. And it it's is. only – it's not like Tolstoy or something. It's only uh, – 370 pages. So um, Yes, it's not like our previous Sword of Honor trilogy. Well, I always, you know, I said to you, you've got to read that as three separate yes. books. I, I wouldn't have read it if I'd picked it up as a 900-page book. I wouldn't. I would have said, oh, no, cut it out. But I I got suckered into it by reading volume <laughs> one and then, then following it was a net, finding it was a Netflix binge experience. You know, I had to keep <laughs> binging on it. Uh, and I binged on Willa Cather too. I just went around buying book after book of hers. And uh, Well, look, if we'd had five, uh, six favourite books, I think maybe her her other her other novel might have featured as your sixth favourite. But unfortunately, we've just got, we've only got two more to discuss. Absolutely. So her other the other one of hers that I think is best is Death Comes for the Archbishop. Mm. But I, I, did, I thought I shouldn't do too many male-centred, religious books in particular and this is uh, very this is very diverse this is this ticks all that this she ticks the boxes so yeah we've got yeah the but i have to say it's honestly one of my very favorite novels and the only one as i say i've come upon you know in the last six or seven years which has really revolutionized my view of uh what novels can do and literature and 
you know, I was like a kid again in love with an author. You know that way you get when you're an obsessive reading kid and mm. you read some author and you love him and you've got to buy every single book that he ever wrote, you know. That, I did that, that was... with Richmore Crompton's William books. I bought them every time, every week that they came out with a new one. I had all 24 volumes. That's pretty good. Yeah. All 24. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> well, P.G. Wodehouse, who we'll discuss in a subsequent conversation, he wrote over 100 books and it's I've got incredible. all of them. And, incredible. Uh, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of books. It's a lot know. of books. It's a lot of books. No television. Yeah. Um, well, I look forward to discussing that next week, um, and it's not going to be the obvious one that, that that people are thinking about. But we'll keep it. We'll keep it a surprise until till our next podcast. Thanks so much, Bella. I, Thank you, you so know, much. It's criminal to enjoy this as much as I do. But there you go. <laughs> not at all. It's it's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks. Sign up today for only $55 and we'll also send you a free copy of the first book, The Year of Living Dangerously by Christopher Koch, which will be signed by Greg and myself. Plus, you'll also be invited to a very special online town hall event that we're having in August, where you can ask Greg any questions that you have about his choice of books. I'm so excited to be sharing this new series with you. For all the details, head to ipa.org.au.